morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Business Book. I'm your host, Derek Lewis, and today I have with me uh, an expert guest, Washington, D.C.-based attorney Daniel Stevens. So he's one of the country's leading experts on intellectual property rights, especially in publishing and, and media. He has represented authors, publishers, artists, ghostwriters, filmmakers, newspaper companies, and I don't even know who else. Um, formerly a book editor as well as a publisher at a division of Thomson Reuters. Um, he was also a publisher and vice president of a VC-funded startup, and he is currently the legal columnist and chair of the Committee for Contracts and Grievances for the Mystery Writers of America. And if all of that weren't enough, he is also the author of four books. Dan, welcome, and uh, thank you for your time this morning. I'm happy to to be here today, Derek. So, as an intellectual property rights attorney, let's let's talk about um, let's talk about what publishing law looks like. Why is it important that uh, authors have a, at least a basic grasp of of intellectual property rights? Well, the short answer is that authors should know their rights in order that they not be taken advantage of by publishers and by distributors and all of the other entities in the the chain that uh, starts with the author and ends up with the reader. Uh, unfortunately, uh, any almost any intellectual property or publishing attorney would tell you that there is a dearth of knowledge among writers about publishing law, uh, certainly with regard to copyright law, with regard to trademark, uh, and with regard to publishing agreements, what should be in a publishing agreement, what should not be in a publishing agreement, and what the industry standards are for all of these things. Uh, like anything else, publishing and, and writing is a craft, and people should spend the time, do the homework to educate themselves in their craft before they jump in headfirst and then find out uh, later that they didn't have sufficient knowledge to uh, to make the best of it, and that's something that we see quite commonly uh, in our practice. Um, I would point out uh, one of the most frustrating things that we have is the the multiplicity of small presses now, uh, independent publishers uh, that prop up all the time, pop up all the time, and uh, that's good in one sense. It's nice to have them, but many of them simply have no idea about how to structure a publishing agreement. And we wince when we see these publishing agreements that have been cobbled together by one company from another company's um, uh, publishing agreement or something they saw on the Internet without understanding any of the significance of the terms. And then, inevitably, they get into trouble. And finally, they consult a lawyer uh, after it's too late and often to... Uh, <laughs> What's to remedy saying? the problems. Yeah, what's that saying about um, uh, uh, ounce of prevention worth the pound of cure? That's exactly right, and and we understand, especially if you're a startup, uh, it's it's tough to budget for attorneys' fees and and for, for have, to have a lawyer write and or vet your contract. So it's much easier just to copy somebody else's and save the money. We understand that, but. Uh, we also see the damage at the other end, and that's why we 
we encourage people, obviously, it's in our interest, but it's also in their interest to, to get a publishing agreement uh, written and examined by a publishing agreement. And the same applies to authors. They should not blindly um, sign a publishing agreement or a ghostwriting agreement or any legal document having to do in the publishing industry without knowing what they're doing. Do you have a, a story handy, a horror story of, of, um, I guess maybe a typical um, example of, of what this looks like whenever the author doesn't, and then they uh, they find themselves in the middle of a of a bad spot, and whenever then they they come to your practice, and then realize that it, with just a little bit of uh, of advice, they could have avoided the the whole uh, debacle. Oh well, I, I could go on for a long time on that, Derek. Um, <laughs> yeah, one of the things that uh, happens often is that an author will sign an option clause without understanding the significance of that, and then find that they're stuck with a publishing company that didn't work for them, that was uh, didn't market their book, and that they're generally dissatisfied with, and find that they must offer their next book to that very same publisher upon the same terms as the first book, and there's not a damn thing they can do about it because they didn't understand the significance of an option clause, which, frankly, most agents will get deleted now, but they don't know that. Uh, another area we often see an issue is where uh, an author doesn't understand the significance of the indemnity clause that is in a standard publishing agreement, a warranty and indemnity clause, and they will uh, go ahead and use something in their book without getting a permission uh, from the copyright holder because they think it's fair use and it's not, or even if they think it's not fair use, they just don't bother getting a permission. And then there is a copyright lawsuit filed against uh, both the publisher and the author, or sometimes just the publisher, and the publisher turns around and says, well, uh, you must uh, pay us for our attorney's fees in defending this case because you signed an indemnity clause in the publishing agreement. So uh, that can, uh, in some cases, that can bankrupt an author if, if the, the book sells well enough and the damages are high enough. It's just, a, uh, again, I could go on. Virtually any clause in a publishing agreement uh, can come back to uh, to haunt an author if they don't understand what it means and why it's there. Um, so that should be kept in mind by everyone. Um, so, I mean, Dan, we could, uh, you know, like you say, we could probably spend uh, an hour on 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 each one of these different topics, but let me let me throw at you three uh, mo the three most common legal related uh, questions or issues that I hear from authors. Um, they are concerned about a non disclosure agreement, an NDA. They are concerned about um, filing for copyright protection, and then they also want to know what is legal for them to to quote. So the fair use. Uh, fair use doctrine. What's legal for them to quote and and not quote? So can you um, can you hit those those three? Certainly. Um, you, you're going to have to stop me if I go on too long on some of these, Derek. But yeah, let, no, let's right go ahead. let's go with the NDA first. All right, an NDA or non-disclosure agreement. Um, that is a clause that is commonly seen for nonfiction books. Obviously, not in fiction books uh, very much. Uh, and it is 
totally negotiable. You don't have to sign it. You can limit it. You can ask that it be deleted. Um, really, an NDA is tied with the non-compete clause that you also see in agreements. So the way that works is that the publisher doesn't want you, the author, to write something on the same topic or a similar topic while the first book is out there in print. And that makes sense, obviously, the publisher. They don't, they're spending money uh, to uh, publish and promote the book, and they don't want something else out there. Uh, the non-disclosure comes in is in that they don't want the author to disclose any of the underlying facts or uh, research that was used in that book to another publisher for the same reasons. It's 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 anti-competitive to have these clauses in there, but it's it's perfectly legal to have it, as assuming that the author agrees to it. Um, so, what we normally try to do is limit the ambit of those clauses, so that, for instance, uh, a broad clause will say that the author cannot publish any book on the on the broad area of the of the subject within as long as the book's in print. So what we would do is we would limit it to the more narrow subject area of just that book. So if it's a business book, it might be a business book on the stock market. Uh, you would limit it to just the stock market book, not to just a general business book. You would also say that even if the book is still in print, that after a period of time, the author could still publish the book on the same topic with another publisher because the first book has had enough time to run its course and supposedly has earned the money that the publisher needs. So that's just in general uh, with, an, with regard to an NDA. With regard to copyright, uh, most authors still don't understand that whether they register the copyright or not, or whether the publisher registers it, as long as they are the creator of the work, uh, copyright attaches automatically. The registration of copyright, which is customarily done when the book is published, although it can be done at any time before, gives the author and or the publisher who is to whom the rights have been assigned for the purpose of publication additional rights that they don't have without registration. It doesn't mean that, the, that they now have copyright. It means that if there is an infringement, it is possible to sue because, um, in general, in the United States, you cannot sue for infringement unless you have registered. And in addition, you can get what are called statutory damages, uh, damages that you don't have to prove uh, the actual damages, just the mere fact that it has occurred, you get a certain amount of money, and you get your attorney's fees if you have registered the, your copyright before the infringement or within three months of the first publication. So now we're sort of drilling down into even uh, more um, esoterica, but the key thing to remember is that the book should be registered before it is gets into the hands of the ultimate um, consumer. Uh, now, some people are very cautious. As soon as they finish the manuscript, they register it online. And that, that's how it's done. It's all done online for 35 bucks. It's fairly easy. And you can do that. Uh, some people don't even bother with that because typically a publisher will register the copyright in the author's name. 
upon publication. Now, uh, let me give an exception to that. Some in, in the business book world or in, in, in what we call professional publishing, um, very often the publishing uh, publisher will take copyright. What does that mean? Uh, it means that the uh, the author will actually assign all rights in, in the copyright to the publisher in perpetuity for full the full term of copyright and, and agree that the book can be registered in the name of the publisher. And you'll see that. So in a business book, you might see that the uh, in the flyleaf, copyright Simon & Schuster rather than the actual author, although the author's name is on the book. Now, that's negotiable. It really doesn't matter much to the author because the author's name is still going to be on it. And in, even if they didn't do that, they would still be assigning the rights to the publisher for as long as the book is in print, even though the book is registered, uh, the copyright is registered in the author's name. So the key thing to understand is, uh, the key takeaway, let's put it that way, is that the author has copyright from the day that the uh, manuscript is fixed in any medium, whether it's on disc or on paper, and typically the publishing agreement will state that the author assigns that copyright to the publisher uh, for a period of time and then specifies which rights of copyright are being uh, assigned because copyright is, can be sliced and diced in many ways. I'm sure you're, anybody who's listening to this knows that there is a difference between film rights and audio rights, uh, between um, publishing rights in the United States and publishing rights overseas, translation rights, merchandising rights. Many of these are what are called subsidiary rights, and they can be carved up. Some can be kept. Some can be assigned to the publisher. All of this is negotiable, and it's something that the author needs to have an understanding of if they don't have an agent or a, um, or a publishing attorney representing them. So, uh, I mean, I've covered a lot of topics, but that's an overview of, of some of the things that an author needs to understand about copyright, that it is, it is the, probably the most important thing in the publishing agreement, because th that is the intellectual property of the author. If you write a book, you have a, a, an intellectual property interest in it, a property interest no different than owning a car or a house. And it is that property right is defined by the copyright law of the United States, and that is what the publishing agreement is taking from you for a period of time, which is again defined in the in the in the publishing agreement. Now, one of the elements of copyright is fair use, and that is probably the most misunderstood part of copyright law in, in the United States. And frankly, this doesn't really apply overseas. They have a whole different concept of what is fair use. But in the United States, fair use only applies to criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research. And to the extent that the work is being used in any of those areas, let me repeat that, criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research, the copyright law of the United States says that those uses can take a certain amount of someone else's property, the copyrighted material, and use it in a separate work um, to a limited extent. And the extent, of course, is the gray area. Uh, the copyright law provides four factors 
to determine whether any of those, any specific use is to be considered a fair use and you don't need permission. And again, criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research, if you use it in those areas uh, and you don't use a substantial amount of the material, it is not necessary that you obtain permission from the actual copyright owner. Unfortunately, you'll see all kinds of people, even publishing companies, will say, well, you can use 400 words of anything, and that's fair use. Well, actually, it's not if it's for commercial use, and it's not for any of the, uh, the, the other items that I talked about, the criticism, comment, etc. cetera. Uh, it, it just, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a term that has been thrown around so much that it is, it is blurred, the lines are so blurred that it is almost impossible to tell anymore what is fair use. It's easier to say what is not fair use. If you see that a substantial amount of a material, of someone else's material are being used in another publication, uh, and it is not, and it is for a commercial purpose, chances are it is not fair use and it is an infringement. Uh, the best example I can give of this would be something like song lyrics. And this is something that probably doesn't come up in, in a business book so much, but it very often is used in fiction, where uh, people will use a song lyric uh, at the beginning of a chapter or throughout a book. Now, a song lyric, uh, a song may have, you know, 50 lines of lyrics or 25 lines of lyrics. If you use five lines of them, that's a substantial part. And that is not fair use because it is it is a substantial percentage of the, the greater body of the work. If you're dealing with Homer's Odyssey or Iliad, and you're using five lines of that, and obviously that's in the public domain anyway, but if it was a huge poem like that, then it might be fair use because it is, it is, so, it is such a small percentage of the amount of the work. If you are using even a, small, uh, a large percentage, but it is being used in a critical review, that might be fair use. So you have to look at all the factors involved in fair use, and uh, what we generally tell people is be very careful before deciding that something is fair use without researching it and understanding exactly what the law behind fair use is. So if somebody did want to use a, a song lyric or if they did want to quote uh, a substantial part of of someone else's book, say it was a, a business book on financial markets, and they wanted to talk about um, uh, what, what is the um, what's that term? Whenever you, you look at uh, the psychology of econometrics, I forget. Anyway, say they wanted to to quote a substantial part of somebody else's book. How would they get around that? Well. They can't get around it. I mean, the unless it is a, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How did how would they do it? Not get around it. Not circumvent the law. But how would they comply with the law and still be able to to write the book they're trying to write? If it's a, if the book is which it typically is, it's for commercial purposes, and it is not criticism, comment, scholarship, or research. It's something that you're putting on the market to sell to people, which most business books are. Um, it, it's, it would be a very rare situation that taking someone else's work and using it in your book would be fair use. 
a very small amount probably would pass because it, it would meet another test, which is called the de minimis test. If something is so small that even if it doesn't qualify as fair use, it, 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 it's just too small to take notice of, that, that's probably what you would do. Uh, but if you're taking any, you know, any significant percentage of someone else's work or a critical percentage, a critical phrase or, or paragraph that's from someone else's work, chances are that's an infringement. And the way to get around that is, or to use the term get around it, is to get permission. To simply contact the publisher and say, I'd like to use a portion of that book in my book. Will you give permission? And if so, what will it cost? Uh, I mean, that's the real answer. Unless you're writing a, a scholarship, uh, a scholarly article, or it's in a news article, or it's a review, um, you shouldn't be using someone else's material because it's not going to be fair use. Right. So let's actually go go back to a point you were talking about earlier about uh, carving up the copyright and, and subsidiary rights. Um, so let's. Uh, assume that somebody's, you know, brand new author, and they 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 really don't understand the difference between the copyright for a book versus film rights, domestic versus international, print versus digital. Can we? Can you just kind of give a couple of examples of of whenever somebody is entering into an agreement with uh, an agent or a publisher, or especially a small publishing house like you said, who might not have a vetted uh, legal contract, what should they be looking for, the rights to, to keep versus the rights that are they should expect uh, to assign? Well, the, the easy answer is always try to keep as much as many rights as you can. And it, it, that's going to work out very quickly because the publishing agreement that the author receives is going to state what rights the publisher is expecting to take. And if the publisher is simply wanting print rights, then it's easy because then the author is keeping all the other rights. But if, as we often see, the press says that the author is assigning all rights, all subsidiary rights, then that's when the author, uh, having done their homework, should say, wait a minute, um, I, I don't want to do that. I'm happy to give you print rights, but I'm going to keep, for instance, foreign rights and I want to keep translation rights because I think I can sell those myself and I don't want you to handle them right now until I'm more certain that you're going to be uh, the publisher for me in the future. Um, for a business book or for nonfiction, certainly film rights are generally not an issue. Um, there's always exceptions. For instance, uh, think of um, Andrew Lewis's book, um, Liar's Poker. Uh, that uh, it's a nonfiction book uh, about the stock market and how people acted in the stock market. That sounds pretty boring, right? Well, of course, it was made into a movie. So you never know. But for the typical uh, business book, you're really, your main focus should be print rights, uh, what, how long the print rights are for, and that gets into the, the reversion rights for uh, for the out of print clause, and you also want to uh, consider whether the book is going to be something 
that might be worthwhile in the audio market and whether it be worthwhile overseas, either in English or translated overseas, the foreign rights. Um, so those are the, um, I would say those are the three most important things for a business book writer to be concentrated on. Print rights, um, and whether, it, obviously print rights typically now include more than just paper print, they include digital. Um, and every publisher is going to want both of those. Most publishers are also going to want to keep audio rights, but foreign rights and translation rights are generally negotiable. So if you have done your research and you see that the publisher has in the past uh, done pretty well with uh, publishing uh, books in the foreign market and uh, in the translation market, you might want the publisher to have those rights in which case typically there'd be a 50-50 split on, on the sale of those rights to the overseas publishers or, or the translated version. Or you can decide that you would rather handle them yourself, in which case you, generally you'd have to hire an agent to market those. And, and so that's, that's something that you have to decide between those two options. But um, th those are the... Those are the the three things to be concerned with in generally in subsidiary rights, um, the print slash digital rights, the audio rights, and foreign and translation rights. That's really good to know. Dan, I um, hadn't even considered that. Uh, breaking up the uh, the audio and the uh, and the print before, but that makes uh, that makes sense, especially if the author thinks that they can they can move forward with with one or the other um, and do a better job than the uh, than the publisher could. Yeah, and that generally is going to happen when you're dealing with a very small publisher because the very small presses obviously they don't have their own uh, like the big uh, the big pub six publishers uh, actually the big five now they uh, they all have their own audio divisions. But a small press, it doesn't. All the small press is going to do is license the rights to the book to an audio publication company. You can do the same thing. If the book is successful, why not do it yourself? Um, this, this is, again, something that has to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis based on the, the publisher you're dealing with. So let me throw a horror story at you that, um, that I heard firsthand from uh, from an author, and then you tell me what they probably should have done um, to prevent this. So they went with um, a traditional publisher, um, had uh, an awful experience. No, I take that back. I'm getting I'm getting two stories mixed up. So they actually had a decent experience. Um, the publisher did a print run of I don't know, say ten thousand copies of the book. And the book completely sold out because the author was just a phenomenal, um, phenomenal marketer. So they did another 10,000 copies. And this is a very specialty, um, a very niche field. So they weren't expecting a whole lot. And then the author came through and surprised them again, and they completely sold out. Well, then the author said, well, you know, I still want to, to sell more. Let's do another print run. And the publisher said, no, we really feel that the market is, is tapped out. We're not going to... Um, we're not going to, to print any any more of these books. Um, but he didn't have the rights 
to go back and and uh, and and do the print himself. I mean, he even said, "Well, I'll I'll pay you know for for uh, y'all to to print the book. I I'm selling these books like hotcakes. I I need more printed, and they refused. So there he was. He had uh, a huge market. He still saw potentially, and the author, I mean the the publisher, was unwilling to do any more print runs um, for the for the book. And of course, he had a, a non compete clause in there. He couldn't go write substantially the the same book so he was um up a creek without a paddle well that is that is really an odd situation if it was a semi-standard publishing agreement because any uh industry standard publishing agreement has a reversion clause in it called the out of print clause and the out of print clause is uh exactly there for the purpose of remedying the situation you have just outlined. Um, if, the pub, if the book is out of print, in other words, if it's, and, and the key is the definition of that, but if it's out of print, then the author has a right to, well, the, the rights will revert to the author that were assigned to the publisher, and then the author can find another publishing company or self-publish the book themselves. And this this is happens routinely because uh, typically uh, most books go out of print very quick and this is uh, it's just a matter of how you define the out of print clause as to when and how the author can get the rights back if there was an out of print clause in in the contract that you're discussing the author could simply say okay now I've got my rights back I'll go ahead and publish the book and that would have also ended the non-compete clause because a non-compete clause would only only last during the term of the agreement, and once the rights go back, the agreement is over. So that's how that would be remedied. Now, the key, and again, much of this is uh, is on my web website, uh, publishlawyer.com. You can read articles on all these subjects. But one of the things that came up in the last 10, 15 years with digital publishing is if you define being in print as being able to get a POD copy or a uh, a digital copy then the books never out of print because even though uh you can't get a physical copy anymore as long as you can download a digital copy it, it costs nothing to the publisher and you're stuck you you may be getting nothing out of the book even though you feel that if you put it back in print real print you'd you'd be able to to sell the book and and use it uh, uh you know for other purposes so one of the things, this was, let me just briefly say, this was a big issue uh, with something called the Simon & Schuster rights grab several years ago. Simon & Schuster had a definition that included digital printing as being part of an out-of-print uh, definition, and agents rebelled, and finally Simon & Schuster caved in on this issue. And nowadays, basically, if a digital copy is deemed to be part of being in print, uh, it, is, uh, it is still, uh, there's additional clause that says that if, if that's so, then the digital version must sell X number of copies a year for it to still meet the definition of in print or produce X dollars in revenue each year for it to constitute being in print. And that should be part of any out-of-print definition. Um, but... Um, I would say that the out-of-print clause in a publishing agreement is this, 
it's really the second or third most important thing in the contract. Uh, beyond, you know, when you talk, get past the assignment of rights and, and the subsidiary rights, the next thing you have to concentrate on is that out-of-print clause. Uh, and there's many ways. Some, some out-of-print clauses say even if it's out-of-print, you have to – the publisher has to be given notice, and if, for six months they can decide to relicense it or put it back in print, and then uh, you, you don't get the rights back. There's all kinds of little ways that they try to delay this sort of thing. But all of that's negotiable. And generally, uh, an agent or publishing attorney is going to get a favorable out-of-print clause for the author in the publishing agreement. And the the situation you've outlined is is one that should not and would not happen. Right. So it sounds like if he'd have just if he'd have just even had um, uh, a lawyer just uh, review the the contract, they would have spotted that right off the bat, and he could have avoided that entire um, that entire situation and have ended. The relationship with the the publisher on a, a good note instead of uh, instead of quite the the sour note that he did. Exactly right, and and it's again I I hearken back to what I said before. What is the most important thing for an author? It is their property right in the book. That should be the the paramount factor in looking at a at a publishing agreement, and that means you look at what you're giving up, what you're assigning to the publisher and how you and when and if you get those rights back. That's your property, and that's what should be looked at, even even though you're in the first flesh of being thrilled that a publisher has offered to <laughs> buy your book. Yeah, you do kind of get that, uh, that golden glow, and uh, you're willing to almost give up your first child for the chance of, of having a, a real publisher. Uh, that's right. Just sign here, sign here. Everything's fine, and that's that's what happens. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. Um, well, Dan, let me uh, let me run you through the the gamut of the the three standard questions I try to ask everybody, and then um, I'd like you to uh, share. Um, well, I'll get to that in just a second. So let me run through the the, the standard question. So, what's one of your favorite business books or um, a business related book that you would recommend to everybody listening? Well, again, uh, my specialty is not business books, so I don't I can't say that I'm up on them or that I read them. I uh, I will say a book that I think that is a business book in in, in a way in which I think is a, an important book that. Uh, everyone should read is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. Um, and and that, I think, applies to any author of a business book because if you look at uh, the issue of outliers, and as, you know, as Gladwell talks about, it's going to give you ideas about topics and subjects that you could write your business book about. And it's important, of course, for non-business authors because it, it tells you a lot about humans and Human society. Don't you just love uh, the fact that he's not only a brilliant writer, but he's a good writer. There are a lot of books that are informative, but they are just so dense to to get through. Malcolm Gladwell um, is one of those who can take all of this information and present it in such a way that makes you want to keep reading the the book. 
Exactly, and I, 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 I endorse that entirely. And and I also would point out that uh, another thing that I'd recommend to uh, business book writers is that they read history, because uh, much of I've had several business book authors who have basically their background was in history. They were either uh, in some cases history professors or they just had an interest in history. And it led them to subjects that uh, segued right into into business issues. Um, it's just my personal experience that that's that's very helpful. Studying, you know, for instance, uh, what the Rockefellers did and the at the turn of the century and and the robber barons at that time led uh, an author I know into describing modern. Uh, you know the modern version of the Rockefeller, the, uh, the Jeff Bezos, and the um, uh, you know the, uh, the, the Steve Jobs, people like that. So I think that I would recommend that to any any prospective business author. You know what? In in that um, in that vein, there's a, a book, and good God, it's probably five pounds right here in my hands. That I'm trying to get through. Um, it's a well-written book. It's just, it's just a lot of it. It's called The Power Broker about uh, Robert Moses, and he's uh, he almost single-handedly huh? built New York. Yeah, exactly. It's a fascinating, fascinating man. Fascinating biography, and uh, you, it's really amazing just how much influence individual people can have. And still have. I mean, here we are, a century later, after a lot of uh, a lot of what he uh, did, or almost a century later. It's, um, but yeah, that's actually that's great advice. Thank you. All right. for well, that. actually, when I was uh, with a publishing company, uh, actually Thomson Reuters publishing company that published, it was it was a professional publishing company, but we published some some books that were actually technically biographies. But we're slated as business books because they taught so much about business principles and studying the biography of, of the person. Yeah. So I think that ties right in with what you're saying. Yeah, and there's um, that's one of the neat things about business books is whatever you well what actually is a business book and it can be like it it can be a, a biography that has an economic bent or a, or a business bent it. And that can range all the way from uh, from business and, and history all the way to self help and, and personal development. It's a it's a really neat genre to try to to nail down because you you almost can't. I agree. Um, well, Dan, before uh, I let you go, uh, you mentioned your website, but would you mention it again and then um, tell people uh, if there's uh, any other way that uh, they can connect with you, or get a hold of you, and uh, what kinds of um, Inquiries or business that uh, that you would welcome into your uh, in your practice. Right. Well, my my publisher website is uh, interestingly enough called publishlawyer.com. <laughs> uh, Easy to remember. Two words. Two two words together. Publishlawyer and the word and dot com. And uh, then uh, there's a link on that to my attorney website. If someone is interested in contacting me, they can then click through to my attorney website where uh, there is a contact app for them to contact me. 
uh, and I do uh, I routinely review publishing agreements uh, for a fixed fee, which again, that is also on my website, and represent um, all aspects of uh, authors and people in media, uh, uh, startup websites, anything to do with media and intellectual property we handle here at my office. Awesome. Well, Dan, I really appreciate um, your time today. I appreciate uh, your insights. I appreciate you being able to condense uh, what I know is hours and hours worth of, of conversation and information into um, into a working knowledge for um, for those of us uh, without the privilege of a of a law background. Well, I'm happy to to help, Derek, and I. Uh... Hope that all goes well with uh, everybody who's writing a book. They should keep writing because uh, it's probably the most satisfying pursuit that I can think of. I absolutely second that. All right, Dan, thank you again. You have a great afternoon. You too. All right, bye-bye.